Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese, Sarah Tyson, and Malcolm Keating. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books in a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with John Sellers, a reader in philosophy at Royal Holloway University of London. We're talking about his new book, Marcus Aurelius, which is just out from Routledge. Marcus Aurelius's Meditations is one of the most popular philosophical works by Sales to the public. While in academic philosophy, he is considered somewhat of a philosophical lightweight. In his new book, Sellers argues that this academic perception mistakes the Meditations as a failed work of theoretical argument when instead it is a series of spiritual training exercises to condition the Roman emperor's character in accordance with the Stoic doctrines he learned as a bookish boy. Seller sees Marcus Aurelius as using his meditations as an antidote to corrupting pressures of his powerful position and debilitating suffering in the, adver- in the face of adversity in his personal life and in his military campaigns against Germanic tribes. The book accessibly introduces the main Stoic doctrines that form the background of Marcus Aurelius's writings and show how he reviews the day's events and where he has gone wrong in his responses to them in their light. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, John Sellers. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, this is, I'm really gr- uh, excited to be talking about uh, Marcus Aurelius and uh, the Stoics I, seems to be something that's floating in the air these days, along with the um, along with the virus, is, is some of the emotional reactions and how people are dealing with um, you know the the difficulties of, of of the pandemic and everything associated with it. Um, so I've been hearing a lot of muttering, <laughs> you might say, about about Stoicism, and uh, I thought it would be a great idea to to talk with a leading expert on. Uh, Stoicism, and in particular about um, uh, one of the leading Stoics, right, or at least one of the most famous um, uh, people in history who were a Stoic, uh, Marcus Aurelius. Um, but before we get to uh, to Marcus, um, maybe you could tell us a bit about about John Sellers, um, what you you know, how you got into philosophy, and and how you um, uh, got into you know Stoicism and that whole area of philosophy? Yeah, sure. So I, I mean, I, I, I studied lots of different things when I was a, a, a sort of high school student. Um, I was interested in, in, in physics for a while and those sorts of big questions, right? You know, the origins of the universe, those sorts of things. So I was very interested in those sorts of questions. And then a little later um, in my teenage years, um, I had the chance to study politics, and I had a very good politics teacher. And we used to do the kind of usual stuff when you study politics about how the government works and that kind of thing. And then on a Friday afternoon, we'd have a kind of a free-form session, and he'd ask, ask us questions like, what is justice? What is equality? And it was him asking these sorts of questions about sort of uh, about sort of foundational ideas that underpin our thinking about politics that I think was really my first uh, real connection with philosophy. And that's what prompted me to go to university to study philosophy. So that's how I first um, first got into it. And um, I mean, and as for Marcus Aurelius and the Stoics, I mean, Marcus Aurelius, his meditations was a book that I read fairly early on when I was a philosophy student, just one of those books you easily find in the bookshop, right? And um, and found it fascinating, as lots of people do. Um, and um, 
remember reading in the introduction to the translations I, I read that he was a Stoic. And so I kind of made a mental note of that as something that would be nice to circle back to at a later later stage. And then various other things that I studied during my degree um, often led me in the direction of Stoicism. So, for instance, I studied Spinoza as part of a course in early modern philosophy and was fascinated by him and his approach to the emotions and then end up, ended up reading various bits of secondary literature that said, well, you know, the, the, the precursors to what Spinoza was doing is, were the Stoics. And this happened two or three times, and suddenly a range of what started off as very disparate interests all seemed to have little arrows pointing themselves back to the Stoics. So then um, in graduate school, I decided to uh, focus on um, Stoicism. Cool. That's, that's interesting. Um, so well, tell us a bit about, about uh, Marcus Aurelius. Um, you know, he was a Roman emperor, um, you know, for, for the person who's not a, a, an expert in, in Stoicism. Um, uh, who was he? were the basics of him sure so he he was born in 121 um, ad and dies in 180 so second century ad um by this point the roman um empire has gained more and more or less kind of sort of hereditary system of, of government right there's a, a series of uh, um uh, of um transfers of power based based on that marcus isn't born into the imperial family though i mean he's obviously a fairly uh comes from a fairly elite and privileged background but he wasn't expecting to be roman emperor when he was growing up um there was a uh, an adoption of um his predecessor antoninus pius and at the process when antoninus was adopted into the imperial family he in turn adopted marcus into um, his family and so through the process of these two adoptions marcus found himself next in line for um for the throne effectively right i mean so one of the things that's quite interesting though is that marcus was very interested in philosophy from a very young age the accounts that we have present him as a very kind of bookish and studious young man really interested in philosophy from the get-go and in fact his kind of reputation for being very level-headed and virtuous and studious these may have been characteristics that marked him out as someone worthy of adoption and someone who would be well placed to take on that role so the philosophy may well have set him up for his future career in in um, in, in politics in a way um I think he suffers quite a lot of adversity during the course of his life and his career. He has a, a large number of children with his wife, but a significant number of them um, uh, don't survive. I mean, obviously, that's quite common in the ancient world. But I think in his case, you know, there were a lot, a lot of lost, lost children, sadly. Um, and he's also emperor during a period of conflict. So much of his time is spent on the battlefield, on the front line, fighting with um, Germanic tribes. Um, in Europe. And it's during that period towards the end of his life, when he's um, on campaign, that he writes his book, The Meditations. So he's writing that in the last decade of his life, in his 50s. And, you know, the kind of image that we might create is of someone who, um, you know, at the end of the day, sits down to write these reflections and notes to himself. in order to go through some kind of process of, of self-improvement and to reflect on the philosophical ideas that he'd studied in his youth. Interesting. Um, so uh, what did it mean to be a Stoic at that time? I mean, the, the school or community you know, began in Athens several centuries before. Um, and you know, so there was this persistent strain of thought um, uh, and Marcus himself is, is seen as, you know, is, is probably one of the more famous ones because he was emperor, right, rather than because of his contributions to, to Stoicism as a philosophical school. Um, but one of the, I, I guess the, the, the thread the, that goes through the book is the idea that um, he 
you know, he's famous for the meditations, um, but these are often kind of dismissed as jottings of some sort. And they're not the reflections of, say, a deep thinker, like, you know, like Descartes' meditations, right, are, are, are clearly very philosophically rich. And in contrast, uh, the story goes, um, uh, his, you know, Marcus Aurelius' meditations are just, you know, you know, thoughts to himself um, and not very philosophically um, uh, rich uh, or anything of that sort. And, and in your, your book, your, um, I guess the theme is that this, this reputation isn't exactly, isn't deserved, that there's something that he is doing in the book, in, in the meditations, that is, you know, um, uh, you know, has a particular philosophical value that, that we ought to recognize. Um, so, you know, first of all, what, what is it to be a Stoic, you know, in, in, in sort of more general principle ways? And then what is it that you see Marcus Aurelius as doing in the meditations to contribute to that um, school of thought? Mm, yeah, lots of really interesting questions there. So, um, I mean, you're absolutely right. There have been lots of people who, lots, lots of academic philosophers people coming from that background who've been fairly dismissive of Marcus Aurelius. They don't see the kind of technical philosophy that they know and love in the meditation, so they don't think it's a particularly significant philosophical work. And some people have thought that it's a fairly eclectic work as well, um, with certain Platonic influences or Epicurean influences. So not only is he not a great philosopher, they might argue, but he's not even a proper orthodox Stoic right? So those are the sorts of criticisms that have often been leveled. I mean, we might contrast that with his popularity amongst general readers. I mean, if you go to a certain well-known online book retailer um, <laughs> and you look at the top, the, the top 10 selling, best-selling philosophy books, you'll probably find that three or four of the top 10 philosophy books on sale are different translations of Marcus Aurelius's meditations. It's by far the most popular philosophy text out there in terms of book sales, and it has been for quite a while. So there's a real mismatch between the kind of academic view of him and the kind of popular reception. That's, so that's just one thing I think worth underlining. Um, another thing, again, just um, says that that's a very mod that's a modern fascination so in the middle ages for instance mark um, the meditations didn't circulate particularly widely um seneca was the preeminent stoic throughout the middle ages and into the renaissance so marcus aurelius becomes really comes to light in the 17th century and becomes a you know a bestseller in the 18th 19th and 20th centuries so it's a it's a modern phenomenon to see marcus as this this key figure in the stoic tradition I mean, and as for what it means to be a Stoic in this period, this is a really interesting question because the critics would say, well, he's not a real Stoic. We're then left with the question, well, what does it mean to be a real Stoic? I mean, what did it mean in antiquity? What does it mean now um, or at any other point in, in, in the history of philosophy? And as you say, in the first century BC, the kind of formal community of Stoics in Athens comes to an end. And so for people like Seneca or Marcus Aurelius writing um, a little later in the Roman context, how do you become a Stoic, right? You don't go to the Stoic community and get your membership card. What counts? Um, what are the core doctrines that you have to believe to be a Stoic? And again, there's, there's a lot of heterodoxy within the Stoic tradition. Um, it's often contrasted with the Epicurean tradition where Epicurus was held up as the great master, right? The authority figure and the point of reference. Whereas and the Stoics do that a little bit with Chrysippus, but not in quite the same way. So there's there's plenty of variety within the Stoic tradition, we might say. Um, so there's a sense in which there's, a, there's an element of self-identification going on. Um, you know, you read Stoic texts and you think, yeah, I like what I'm. I like what I'm reading here. Um, I'm going to adopt some of these ideas, and in that sense, 
I think Marcus was a stoic as much as anyone could have been, um, because I say there, there are no membership cards. Um, so what, uh, given that somewhat, you know, I don't know, pluralistic or, or um, you know, lack of a, as you mentioned, a central one particular central figure or um, set of fixed, I suppose, uh, you know, catechism maybe, um, what, what, what is it that makes him perhaps a Stoic then? You know, what, what, what? What are the principles that that he adopts that make it a you know um, you know perfectly um, legitimate to uh, say yes he he is a stoic because you know and then sort of fill in the blank. Yeah, sure, and of course this is, and this gets us to the nub of the matter, right? So, so in ethics. He will um, accept the kind of core Stoic idea that it's developing um, a virtuous or excellent character that is the one thing that's necessary and sufficient in order to live a good life. And external goods, uh, possessions, um, external states of affairs, all of those things um, are ultimately indifferent to whether we live a good life or not. And as I've just described it there, that's a fairly hard line view. That's the kind of view that the ancient cynics adopted. So the Stoics soften it or modify it a bit by saying that, well, it may well be that some of these external indifferent things are preferable over others, right? So we'd all rather be rich than poor. We'd all rather be healthy than sick, of course. Um, so the Stoics will say that some of these things may be preferred or dispreferred, but none of them are um, necessary in order to live a good life, even if you find yourself in really difficult, adverse circumstances. If you've got the right virtuous character, um, you can still live as good a life as you could if everything was going much better for you. So that's the key idea in ethics that, that he takes up. And then in physics, um, again, the idea that the universe is a single organic unity governed by some kind of rational principle which the stoics um identify with god so they're they're pantheists and he he um adopts that um idea as well okay um so um i i guess one of the you know the the starting points of your analysis before we get into some of the the more specific um uh, doctrines that he that he elaborates in the meditations. Um, uh, you distinguish between sort of learning these general theoretical principles associated with or or core to Stoicism, and then uh, you know the sort of theoretical work, and then there's the um, uh, the training or um, application of these or apprenticeship as you put it um, in terms of applying the theories testing the theories um, you know prodding them in different uh, contexts and things like that and um, and you you argue as, as far as I understand that the meditations belongs in the second part right it's it's not so much, you know, these are your theoretical principles, um, but it's more about this. This is how one, if one's going to be a Stoic, this is how you go about practically training yourself um, to apply the um, the principles of Stoicism. Um, um, so, could you explain that? You know, that perspective on the meditations as um, as you put it, an extended spiritual exercise. Yes. So, I mean, and this picks up on your previous question about sort of defending Marcus's status as a philosopher, right? It's, so the meditations clearly isn't a technical work of philosophy where he's, you know, doing all the sorts of things we might expect from from a typical philosophical text. Although, as I say that, I'm conscious that, you know, there's a huge variety of different types of philosophical text 
uh, out there, of course. I mean, as someone who works on ancient philosophy, you've got poems, dialogues, all sorts that, that come through. Um, so I think the first, the, mis- the first mistake that an, an academic philosopher might make reading the meditations is to expect it to be that kind of text and then be disappointed when they find out that it isn't. Um, and so my, my take on this is that what Marcus is doing when he's writing the meditations is he's trying to digest philosophical ideas, ideas that he's learned previously and that he wants to incorporate into his own life. He wants to train or habituate his soul in order to develop the virtuous character that the Stoics think is so important. And there are a number of ways in which you can do that. And so one of those ways is to kind of continually remind yourself of those key ideas um, or to um, make a note of where you've gone wrong. So Seneca describes this practice um, in one of his texts where he says at the end of the day, he sits down and he reviews the day that he's had and he makes a note of all the places where he went wrong during the course of the day. When did he get angry when he wasn't warranted? When did when was he um, um, uh, uh, rude to people that he encountered and so on. And he makes a note of all of these things so that he can see where he slipped up and so that he can try and do better the next day. Um, and our image is that he's he's literally kind of writing this out, right? You write it down on paper and do an analysis of, of how your day's gone. And we could take that as a model for what Marcus is doing in the meditations. So he's studied all the, the technical philosophical texts, right? He studied his um, philosophical treatise written by Chrysippus or whoever else. And what he's doing in writing the meditations is not giving the proofs for the arguments or the positions, but he's engaged in this, this exercise, this training to digest these ideas into himself so that he can become a better person. And there's a sense in which that's, as I say in the book, a kind of a second stage in a process of philosophical education, right? You first got to study the arguments. Once you kind of accept them and acknowledgement and acknowledge them and you say, okay, I buy that, I'm going to believe that, I can I, I see there are good reasons for it. Then there's the question of okay, how do I incorporate that into my habitual way of behaving? And I think that's what Marcus is trying to do when he's writing the meditations. Okay. Um so in particular, right, so to get into some of the ways in which he, he apprentices himself in this way to himself, um, uh, one of the first important, you mentioned, you know, anger, looking back and seeing, you know, why did I, you know, where did I go wrong in getting angry? You know, where did I go wrong in, in go, being rude? And um, th- that sort of stepping away from, uh, you know, having emotional responses or at least negative emotional responses um, or even positive ones actually is, is popularly, you know, I, I can't speak from any sort of expertise here, um, kind of characteristic of, of the stoic way of life, of, of, of what it is to be a virtue, a virtuous person, have a virtuous character. And from, you know, from the, the book, this seems to begin with you, the, descript, the distinction that you draw between uh, what are impressions, you know, the sort of, you might say, immediate, uh, not just sensory, but, the, you know, the immediate uh, representation of what is happening, and then judgments about what is happening. And... The, it seems like the big first step is to kind of distinguish between our impressions of something and then our judgments of that. Um, can you, that just seems to be a very important first step. And one of the things that, that Aurelius, Marcus Aurelius does is to um, be, you know, to reinforce this idea that one needs to be cautious about one's judgments um, of the impressions could you could you explain that that whole you know aspect of of his training 
Yes. So, I mean, let me perhaps begin with a little bit of um, background in the kind of early Stoic theory. So, the the early Stoics will suggest that um, we we gain sensory experience um, that that's presented to our minds in a kind of propositional form, right? Uh, the sun is shining, the cat is on the mat, whatever it might be. And then our minds either assent or reject um, that proposition. And if we assent to the proposition, the sun is shining, then that forms a belief in our minds and our actions, our um, inclinations to act um, come automatically from our um, beliefs. So it's the judgment that the proposition that's presented to our mind, or sorry, I should say the assent, right? The assent to that proposition, that's the thing that determines our opinions and then how we behave. So that moment of assent is key. And Marcus, following the Stoic Epictetus, who he read and who he follows quite closely, describes this in terms of judgments. So it's the judgments that we make about impressions, right? So Chrysippus in the early Stoic will talk about um, assent to propositions. Marcus and Epictetus will talk about uh, making judgments about impressions. And so if you judge that an impression is true, then that's going to form a belief and then that's going to determine how you behave. Um, and it's also going to determine, as, as you were indicating, whether you have an emotional response to something or not, right? So one of the things that Marcus stresses is that the impressions that we receive aren't always just the kind of raw sense data, right? It's not just the sun is shining. The impression that's presented to your mind for a scent might be something like, um, uh, that person wronged me, okay? It might be an impression that includes some kind of value judgment in it. And then if you if you assent to that, that kind of impression, right, that person wronged me, then that might generate an emotional response of um, anger, say. And so the way in which you can manage or alter your emotional responses is by paying attention to um, the judgments that you make about impressions and analyzing impressions, right? So if the Stoics think that, that it's virtue that's the only thing that's genuinely good because that's the thing that always benefits us and everything external is ultimately um, value neutral or has no inherent value then whatever someone else has done doesn't have any inherent value Um, so if you receive an impression that says so and so has wronged me what Marcus is going to do is going to say, well, the fact that that impression contains a value judgment in it already ought automatically to make us suspicious. So we perhaps ought to hold back before we make a judgment and analyse it further before we decide what we're going to assent to and what we don't. So how, how that's, so it seems like we get the impressions and before we get to the process of assent or rejection or to, you know, belief or not belief, there's already a different sort of judgment going on, which is the value, you know, assigning that particular proposition or impression of, of value. Um, uh, is there any way to avoid that value uh, or is it just that uh, you're going to make some sort of a value judgment uh, and and I'm, I'm thinking now of contemporary you know theories in 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 psychology uh, where you know sort of valuing is just part of the way we respond to the world right and not just humans but anything and would it be correct to say we have impressions, there's a value that we can't help but uh, interpret those impressions in terms of, um, 
But then, of course, there's this other step of assenting or rejecting in terms of embracing that as belief or not belief. And even if we can't stop the value judgment part of an impression, we can stop the belief of that judgment or that it's, 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 um, it's, it's acceptance as true or rejection as false. Would, would that be correct? Mm, so, I mean, this comes back to what I was saying earlier about the, the distinction between the idea that it's virtue that's the thing that's genuinely good and all those other external things, some might be preferred and some might be um, dispreferred. So there's a sense in which what the Stoics want to do is kind of make a shift, a, a kind of category shift, right? So that a certain situation, you might say, well, I'd rather avoid that, right? You don't say it's bad, it's evil, it will do me harm. You'd say, I'd rather avoid that if I can. But if I can't avoid it, it's not going to damage me. It's not going to impact on the, the, the well-being and the quality of my life. So there's a sense in which you're right, those kind of um, judgments of preference look like they're almost going to be inevitable. And in fact, the Stoics say they're entirely natural, right? They're a pr- so the Stoics also have this view that we have a natural instinct to self-preservation, right? We all want to survive. We, um, we pursue the things that we think are going to benefit and sustain us, and we avoid the things that we think are going to harm us. Um, but what the Stoics want us to do is to classify those things as preferred and not preferred rather than saying they're absolutely good or absolutely bad. I see. Okay, good, good. Um, So you mentioned before um, this idea of an organic unity to nature. Um, And uh, how how does Marcus Aurelius sort of respond to that particular principle? What is What are the exercises that he engages in uh, with respect to this Stoic idea of, you know, nature as just one organic whole in which, you know, he or each of us is, is a part, right? Just a part. How does that, how does that, um, you know, affect uh, the way he tries to live his life? Mm, it's it's really interesting the role of um, uh, nature uh, and physics in the meditations. So it's a book that a lot of people might describe as a book of kind of practical ethics, right? So you know I've talked about the way in which he's trying to sort of cultivate his virtuous character. This sounds like applied or practical ethics. It doesn't sound like it's got much to do with the study of nature. But what's interesting is that themes from Stoic physics, re- I think. Um, are predominant they're they're the things that come up again and again so Marcus is constantly reminding himself that he's just one small part of this much larger entity um, and that his well-being is closely tied up with the well-being of 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 the whole right Um, and if he tries to cut himself off from nature and pretend that he can exist a completely separated autonomous life He's just going to be deluding himself. So you can see how there's potentially a foundation here for a sort of strand of sort of ecological thinking, right? Our well-being as individuals is tied up with the well-being of the whole, and we need to remind ourselves of that regularly. So that's one thing that Marcus is doing. Um, and there's also a sense in which there's a bit of ego management going on here, right? So he's Roman emperor. He's the most powerful person in the Western world. He presumably has all sorts of... Um, sycophants at court telling him he's the most wonderful, most powerful person in the world as they try to get what they want out of him. And so there's a sense in which he's he's countering that almost daily um, risk of developing a kind of sort of egotism that many of his predecessors did by reminding himself of how actually small and insignificant he is within the larger scheme of things. And another kind of key idea that we see is his focus on um, change, right? The, the fact that nature is constantly changing. Um, nothing stays the same from one moment to the next. Um, he often quotes Heraclitus and the Stoics in general 
um, drew on Heraclitus in the development of their physics. So there's great stress on that. Um, he uses that to console himself about um, death, for instance, um, the fact that he's going to die, the death of, of others. This is just a natural process of change, and change is inevitable. It's just part of how nature works, and that's something that everyone needs to accept as a fact about the world um, in order to avoid um, you know, excessive emotional responses um, to, to the fact that thing, to, to, to changes that we might you know, prefer didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so are these, I mean, this, I mean, that, that's interesting about the, the whole, what you mentioned just with ego management and, and that whole idea that, uh, you know, being such a powerful person uh, at the same time, countering that with this idea that, you know, ultimately his his life is no longer than anybody else's, you know, I mean, roughly speaking, uh, he is just a speck in the organic unity of the, of the, uh, cosmos, just like anybody else. Um, do you, do you see that sort of thing applicable in some way to, um, to leadership today? (laughs) Uh, you know, is this, is, is this something, you know, we can kind of look back at the, at the, you know, thousands of years ago to the Roman empire, um, and think about, well, how wonderful, you know, Marcus Aurelius was, but these are really, it's, it's kind of a naive view of human nature and of how leaders, uh, should and ought to deal with the positions that they find themselves in. I mean, is there, what would be the, is there any way to argue that, uh, people that leaders today uh, ought to adopt the same sorts of, of principles? Um, absolutely. I mean, I'm not going to comment on a recent American president and the problems of egotism. But um, yeah, I mean, I think a little, you know, a little bit of humility will, uh, does us all good. Um, and people that are in particularly powerful positions whose actions have particularly significant consequences need to pay attention to this more than anyone else. Um, I mean, I think there's a quotation from somewhere in an interview where um, Bill Clinton says that Marcus Aurelius was one of his favourite favorite bedside books. And back in the 18th century, um, it was a favourite read of Frederick the Great. So there have been various leaders in the past that have turned to Marcus Aurelius as a source of inspiration. Um, the other thing that I think I'd want to say is I'm I'm a bit suspicious of this image of Marcus Aurelius as this kind of very good emperor who is kind of wise philosopher, kind of perfect individual, right? I don't think he was at all. I think he was a he was a late middle aged man in an incredibly difficult job, doing his best to to get through it. And there's a sense in which the things that he talks about in the meditations are the th- are the are the topics on which he's imperfect right you're not going to do exercises about partic- on particular issues if you're already up to scratch right so one central thing that recurs again and again in the meditations is um you know don't get irritated by people don't don't get annoyed when people come and ask you stupid questions right now why is he going to be repeating that to himself again and again if he's not constantly getting irritated by people asking him questions um so 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 he he's a work in progress right and i think one of the things that's that's so interesting about the meditations as a book is it's a window into someone who is most definitely imperfect who's trying to trying to improve themselves um um uh, with the with the help of Stoic philosophy, okay, that yeah, right. Um, well, along those lines, I mean, you you draw this distinction uh, between um, sort of resigned acceptance to one's fate, you know. So part of this whole organic unity, you know, organized 
organic unity that is the cosmos um, is the idea of fate, right? You you have a particular fate, and um, that's the way things are going to happen. Um, and there's acceptance of the fate, and then what you call your know, sort of positive acceptance. Um, uh, and what? So I was just wonder if you could explain that distinction, and then also there are passages where uh, Marcus Aurelius is, uh, I don't know, entertaining or at least considering the alternative view of atomism, right? Where it's just, you know, atoms in the void, you know, random movement of these, of these particles. Um, so could you explain that distinction that you draw and then how, um, how Marcus Aurelius and the meditation sort of, uh, exhibits that, um, and and then why, or or what role his consideration of atomism, you know, plays in uh, in that distinction. Yes. So, I mean, the questions about fate and providence, I think, are really quite tricky in Stoicism. Let me try and say a bit about um, about that. So, by fate, we don't mean fate in the sense of you know it's your destiny um we're, we're, we're talking about causal determinism ultimately so um the question is 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 nature causally determined um and the stoics certainly think that it is um and is it providentially organized in some way and the stoics also um believe that and they identify fate with providence that's the kind of the standard stoic view and in in Marcus, but and you see this previously in Seneca as well. You, you often see different attitudes expressed. So sometimes you'll you'll see a kind of attitude of what we might call resigned acceptance. So this is just the way it is, and I've just got to accept it. Um, there's no point complaining about it because it can't be any other way. That's just how it is, right? That's a kind of acknowledgement of fate, we might say. That's a kind of an acceptance of causal determinism. Um, this couldn't be any other way than it is right now. Um, but if you genuinely believe in divine providence, um, as the Stoics did, if you really believe that the world is organized according to some rational principle, this is the best of all possible worlds governed by um, a benevolent, imminent God, then if you really grasp that idea, um, not suggesting many people would today, the thought would be that you wouldn't just um, accept what happens, but you'd positively embrace it, a kind of sort of Nietzschean amor fati, right? You'd, you'd love whatever happens because it would be part of this perfect divine plan. And I think we see Marcus express both of those attitudes in different passages and I think perhaps that's just an element of mood, right? It depends on the day he's had, um, depends on, on 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 where he's at that particular moment. Reflecting the fact that this isn't, you know, a fully worked out technical treatise. It's a it's a diary written, you know, as a series of of reflections. Um, so there's a sense in which you could relate this to someone's grasp of stoic theory right if you really grasp the idea of providence and you accept it and you really um, um understand and, and and fully accept that idea then you ought to have this kind of really positive attitude of embracing everything that happens um as part of this divine plan if you haven't quite managed to gain that kind of understanding of stoic physics but you can at least understand the basic idea of causal determinism you might more likely end up in an attitude of kind of resigned acceptance so there's a sense in which the further you progress in grasping these stoic ideas about nature, the more positive attitude and outlook you'll um, come out with. So that's kind of the first part of your question. Now, of course, these days, and as you said right at the, at the top, lots of talk about stoicism these days, lots of people interested in it. Probably not that many of them are going to be that impressed by the idea of divine providence if they're coming from a broadly secular background, right? So the other element that you touched on, which is really interesting, is a series of passages where Marcus talks about the distinction between providence versus 
atoms. So he's contrasting the stoic account of nature with Epicurean atomism, um, in which obviously everything's just the product of contingent random um, interactions of matter. And what's in, I mean, these are sometimes pointed to by Marcus's detractors as examples of his eclecticism or him not being a proper stoic. But when people have read these passages closely, the thing that comes out from them is what he's usually saying is something along the following lines. He says, well, it could be providentially organized. It could just be atomic chaos. But actually, it doesn't make any difference to what it is I need to do now, which is act according to my virtuous character to be courageous, just, uh, moderate, and so on. And so although the physics has some impact on developing this kind of positive outlook, ultimately, in terms of acting virtuously, it doesn't really matter too much either way. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, so what are these these virtues? You've just mentioned a couple, you know, justice, moderation, wisdom. Um, uh, what are the Stoic virtues? And, and, and I think, you know, you, you sort of mentioned that he puts the virtue of justice first. Um, so what, what is justice to him? I mean, so what are, what are the virtues in general? And then what, which, what is justice in particular to him? Mm. So the standard for canonical Stoic virtues are wisdom, justice, courage, and moderation or 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 temperance. Um, and and they think they come as a package. So there's there's discussion of the um, the unity of virtue. Um, if you've got a virtuous character, you'll have those four. And they're drawing on um, material in the early Platonic dialogues that we associate with Socrates um, in in all of this. So they so so those those are the core core virtues that they they outline, and again, given the nature of the text, Marcus doesn't give us any kind of systematic discussion of these. But having looked through the various virtues that he mentions, um, justice is the one that he mentions more often than any of the others. That seems to be the one most on his mind. And again, I guess we might explain that. Um, with reference to his day job, right, his position as emperor, um, he's literally presiding over cases where he's required to to make um, judgments, and he wants those judgments to be to be fair and just. Um, as to what he thinks justice is, I mean, he talks a lot about human beings being social animals. He thinks we're we're naturally social, and that as social animals, we ought to think about the welfare of other people and we ought to benefit other people. And in fact, if we're good, healthy human beings, we'll just instinctively do those things. And if we become um, antisocial, if we don't by instinct immediately feel we should help other people, then there's a sense in which something's gone wrong. Um, So... I think it's that idea that we're all in it together and we're we're all here to to benefit each other seems to be seem to be the central ideas that he associates with justice. Okay. So um if we're natural I mean that that was a you know, he does have this um idea of the you know, the social you know, we're essentially social beings. Um but I, I so what is uh, so another human being? Um, uh, on the one hand, there's this idea that everything outside of one is is an external indifferent, right? And some are preferred, and some are not preferred. But they're all external, and we should all be indifferent. And yet, at the same time, we are essentially social, and that that seems to, you know, in some sense, you might. You might say imply that uh, other people are in some way not external to me. I don't, you know, I'm not sure, quite sure how to put that. But how do those two aspects kind of cohere? You know, the idea that anything outside of me is an indifferent, 
And at the same time, I am part of this, you know, particularly the social, uh, the social aspect of myself. Yeah, I mean, that is a very good question. It's a it's a tricky one to um, to spell out clearly, I think. I mean, I'll, I'll give it a go. So. Um, so the Stoics in general think we are naturally social beings. We instinctively care for other people. Um, I mentioned earlier the idea that they think we've got this instinct for self-preservation. Um, but they also think that that instinct for self-preservation can extend beyond ourselves, narrowly speaking, and can extend to, for instance, our immediate family members, right? So the parent that will look after and protect their child as much um, as they do themselves. Um, and we can extend that instinct of care and concern to you know, our wider family, to our friends, our immediate neighbours, and so on and so on. And in fact, the, the more we develop our virtuous character, the wider we'll expand that circle of concern so that we care for as many other people as possible. Um, the point about other people merely being indifference, though, I think comes back to the idea of what's essential for us as individuals to live a good life. And the thought would be not that other people are completely worthless, but that other people, their presence or absence, what they do, none of that has any direct impact on our ability to live a good life. Um, so, if there's someone that you, you know, if, there, if there's someone that you you really want to like you and they just don't like you, for instance, um, that ought not to ha- that that might be something that that we might have um, views about in terms of being a preference or not. But it ought not to have any direct impact on our well-being. So, I think the idea that other people are are indifferent comes back to that idea of how much impact they have on our well-being. And the Stoics want to suggest that um, they ought not to have a huge amount of impact. But we've still nevertheless got this natural instinct to want to care and look after others. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's difficult. I mean, I, um, you know, on the one hand, my well-being is, uh, in a sense, up to me and how I manage my impressions. And on, on the other hand... If I'm essentially a social being, then my well-being has to depend on others, and and I guess it's the nature of that dependence on others that, where, you know, perhaps those two things can be reconciled. I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, think about, um, I mean, I mean, think about a, a difficult case like bereavement, for instance. Um, and 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 Marcus himself, you know, reflects on this quite, uh, um, you know, quite a lot. Um, is it something genuinely bad when a loved one dies? And 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 the, the strict Stoic view is going to be no. It's not something that's genuinely bad. Um, it was something inevitable, in the sense that they were a mortal being. That it was going to have to happen at some point. Um, it's a natural process of change all living beings born, grow, develop, wither and die, and humans are no different to any other natural organism. Um, and and it is possible still to live a good, happy life even after um, uh, uh, someone uh, someone has gone. Um, I mean, that's the kind of view that they want to take. They want to resist the idea that the loss of a loved one was a, is a terrible, um, irrevocable tragedy that has changed everything significantly for the worse. And they'd want to offer consolation along the lines I suggested, that this is just a, an inevitable and natural process. And by bearing that in mind, one can um, 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 avoid an event like that becoming something debilitating that destroys the quality of someone's life. Um, but perhaps it's also worth adding that... Um, that um, that they also think grief is a perfectly natural process. And so Seneca, for instance, will say, well, crying isn't in fact an emotion in the Stoic sense. If someone were to lose a loved one and they were to grieve and to cry in a, in a, in a perfectly normal way, 
that's not an emotion in the stoic sense. That's a normal, healthy reaction. Um, it becomes an, a, a, an emotion in the stoic sense if someone has made the judgment that something terrible has happened and that hangs around with them you know, years after and it becomes something debilitating and um, restricts their ability to move on. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I think, um, let me just ask about, uh, you, you, you end the book with a discussion of the, the cosmic city. Um, uh, which is, as I understood it, a sort of a, a virtual community rather than an actual one. Um, uh, can, you, can you explain that, um, that concept and its role in, uh, in Marcus Aurelius's thought? Yes. So, so the Stoics are drawing on some earlier cynic ideas of cosmopolitanism, the idea that we're each citizens of the cosmos. And that they combine that with their view of nature as being something that's rationally ordered and organized. And so they suggest that we ought to think of the cosmos as a city governed by divine law. And all of us by virtue of being rational beings that can understand that that divine law, are citizens of this cosmic city. And as you say, it's a kind of a virtual community. So anyone who recognises themselves as a cosmopolitan citizen um, is a member of this cosmic city. Um, and I suppose in some sense everybody is, whether they realise it or not, even if they don't, they're not fully aware of this. And there are a couple of consequences of this. One of them is the idea that we treat all of humankind as a single community. Um, And so we don't um, give preference to people within our local community over people in other parts of the world. So there's a a strong sort of egalitarian ethos there behind this idea. Um, And one of the things that, that, again, you might not expect from a Roman emperor is Marcus Aurelius says he's a citizen of two communities, the cosmic city, by virtue of being a rational human being, and he's a citizen of Rome. And if those two allegiances come into conflict with one another, he ought to prioritise the cosmic city over the contingent man-made political organisation that, um, um, that is the Roman Empire or any other um, uh, state that we might live in. And so if there's a conflict between what we might think of as natural justice over the contingent laws of the community that we find ourselves in, we ought to prioritise that idea of, of natural justice. So again, there's a kind of a, a justification for civil disobedience in certain contexts if we think the laws of our local state are unjust. And, and that seems like a, a, a kind of a, an interesting thing that we could take away from what Marcus is saying here. Hmm. Interesting. So is, is there some other... You know, we're, we're close to um, running out of time, but is there some aspect of Marcus Aurelius's thought or the meditations that we haven't touched on that you, that you want um, listeners to, to know about? Um, no, I think, I, I think we've, uh, I, th- I think we've, we've covered, we've covered quite a lot of ground actually. So it's, it's been, it's been, it's been really good. Um, I mean, I suppose the one thing I would say is, that um, yeah, I mean, this isn't this isn't a book written by a perfectly wise individual dispensing um, um, carefully crafted wisdom. It's a window into someone engaged in a kind of a virtue ethics process of self improvement. And if we kind of approach the text in that way, then people can 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 perhaps find bits and pieces in there that they might find useful for themselves. Um, and so it's a window into that process, um, which I think is, is something really striking and there's no other, no other text quite like it. Mm. So we can, we can apprentice ourselves to using his text as a, as a kind of um, textbook in a way. Yeah, absolutely. Um. Okay, well, we are we're out of time. Um, maybe just to close, can you? Um, what's what's on the horizon for you? Are you working on another book of the Stoics, or are you turning to something else at this point? 
Um, I've got a number of things in the pipeline at the minute. I mean, I'll mention just one because it's relevant, which is that I'm um, just starting to edit a Cambridge companion to Marcus Aurelius's Meditations uh, and and gathering together chapters for that. And um, I've, I'm, I'm very pleased. I've got some very good people lined up to contribute to that book. So I think that will be really interesting and uh, hopefully uh, useful for people. Excellent. Well, that sounds good. And uh, good luck with that. I mean, I'm sure it will, um, I'm, sure, I'm sure it will be very, very interesting. Um, but we are, uh, we are out of time. And so I just want to thank you again for taking the time uh, to talk with us about um, your new book and about stoicism in general, um, particularly at this time. So thank you very much. No, it's been my pleasure. You've been listening to an interview with John Sellers, reader in philosophy at Royal Holloway University of London. We've been talking about his new book, Marcus Aurelius, which is just out from Routledge. This is Carrie Figdor for New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and thank you for listening.